This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. Washington, D.C. is preparing for the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, but the circumstances will be much different this year due to the pandemic and the recent Capitol Hill riot. Responding to heightened security threats, the nation's capital has a heavy presence of National Guard troops, some 26,000 on the ground, barbed wire and armored vehicles, all in hopes of maintaining peace and order during this transfer of power. Meanwhile, following the vote in the House to impeach President Trump, the Senate is expected to hold an impeachment trial after the inauguration. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who will soon trade titles, have remained virtually silent on further details. We'll start there with our panel, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, co-founder of The Dispatch and host of the Remnant podcast, Jonah Goldberg and founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow, Matthew Continetti. Matthew, let me start with you. I mean, this is pretty extraordinary when you think about it and um, what we're facing ahead of this inauguration. Extraordinary, Brett, and unprecedented. Uh, the last two months, uh, really beginning with President Trump's inability or failure to concede the election um, when it was called on November 7th, and culminating in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th um, had no real uh, precedent in American politics. And so it's a, it's a sad day, I think, for America um, that we have to inaugurate the next president under such a heavy security blanket. Jonah? Yeah, no, obviously I agree with that. Although, you know, it was always going to be a weird inauguration because of the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, we were never going to get the normal pomp and circumstance, but obviously this, you know, I mean, this is going to go down in history books where, you know, the images from the, from these last two weeks of mob storming the Capitol and of basically the federal city part of Washington, uh, looking like in a militarized, you know, like a green zone from Baghdad, uh, these are going to be in high school textbooks. Uh, for the rest of our lives. And it's, it's, it's a sad thing. Tom, does it affect Biden's message uh, just by the visuals? You know, perhaps. I mean, look, Joe Biden has said uh, repeatedly over time that he wants to unite the country and help heal uh, the divide. And, and sometimes he's done things to, to, sort of back that up. Other times he said some things that seem to, you know, appear that he's doing the opposite. So um, I do, I do think there is an imperative and, and we've seen some reporting that his speech is really going to focus on unity. This is, that's what the moment requires, you know? So I think he's going, I, I think he will rise to the occasion in that respect. Um, but, but obviously look, the partisanship in, in Washington right now is as, as poisonous and dysfunctional um, you have, you know, members of one party calling for the expulsion of of senators, ethics investigations over, you know, supporting election challenges, et cetera, et cetera. 
an impending impeachment trial in the Senate. And, and all of that is supposed to happen, you know, while there's going to be some sort of bipartisanship to move some pieces of legislation. I mean, it's just it seems like, um, you know, for all the words that Biden would and, and, and should speak, uh, you know, tomorrow and, and in the coming days, the reality on the ground suggests that that the partisanship is as, as rancorous as it's ever been. Is there a case, Matthew, and I know you've made the case that uh, because of what President Trump said and what he's done, that he should be impeached and removed from office. And I've read your your articles about that. But is there a case from a Biden perspective that that's not helpful to the start of the Biden agenda? And is it a compelling case? I think uh, Biden is leery of having Trump dominate the headlines of his first few weeks uh, in office. The reason that I personally believe he should not let that stop the trial and disqualification of President Trump is that uh, if Trump is not disqualified, in my view, uh, he will continue to dominate the headlines of Biden's presidency for the next four years. <laughs> there will be no, and the, I, the specter of a second Trump candidacy uh, will always be in the offing. Now, uh, paradoxically, Joe Biden might think that will help him politically, and maybe indeed it will if uh, the majority of Americans who now have clearly turned against President Trump, he's leaving office with his lowest ratings of his tenure, um, cling to Biden as kind of the only way uh, they can escape another Trump presidency that might benefit Biden and his, and his administration. On the downside, in my view, is the continuing damage to American democracy and the constitutional order. Jonah, what about that argument uh, both ways? You know, the Biden agenda versus the principle of rule of law, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean this is one of these situations where, you know, choose door number one, choose door number two, choose door number three. Whichever way you go, there are potentially very bad precedents that could come from it, but you got to choose one of them. And I'm, I'm with Matt on this. I think the, the worst precedent would, to leave, would be to leave Trump's behavior unsanctioned in some way. But, you know, it's a tricky political question for Joe Biden. Right now, ever since basically the Georgia runoffs, Donald Trump has been, in effect, a wedge issue for Republicans, you know, a wedge issue is usually what you try to create for the other side that divides the other side um, and, you know, give, leaves you with a majority on your side. Because he talked about the elections being stolen, because he attacked the government, the, the, the state officials, including the governor in Georgia, he divided Republican voters and united Democratic voters, sending a lot of Republican voters into the Democratic's arms. The same thing I think you could say about impeachment. Impeachment is very much a wedge issue for Republicans, dividing Republicans bitterly and uniting Democrats. One could see the argument as a matter of statesmanship, particularly if it was part of some grand bargain where he said he would get out of politics, where Biden pardons Donald Trump to put all of this behind us. The problem with that is that that then becomes a wedge issue for Democrats, because there are going to be a lot of Democrats who are going to be very angry about that, and they're going to still want blood. And um, so it's in many ways, it feels to me like a no win scenario. They're all there are downsides to everything. And if and since you can't predict the future anyway, you might as well just do what you think the most right and correct thing is. And that's why I'm still in favor of impeachment, even though I think there are real downsides to it. Yeah. Well, the other thing is math, Tom, and whether you can get the numbers once you're in a Senate trial. I mean, 
I guess it's possible to get the numbers, but doing it right now, it doesn't seem like they're there. It seems unlikely. And I'm still, I mean, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but it appears there still are constitutional questions about whether, you know, about, about the Senate trial with a, a, a Senate of a different composition than the, than the house that impeached him. But I, I don't think beyond the sort of usual suspects, Mitt Romney, uh, you know, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, that you could get to a, a, a number that would that would impeach a president who has already left office. So it's kind of uh, it, it seems like a futile effort. And and I, I think, you know, Joe Biden is inclined to for political reasons to want to get Trump. I, look, I I don't know if I agree with Matt necessarily. I think that Donald Trump is going to be some some specter out there. I mean, perhaps he will have a revival at some point in the future, but at least in the immediate future for Joe Biden, he's got a, you know, his first hundred days, he's got, you know, whatever sort of momentum that, that all the conventional wisdom says, this is the time to strike, you know, now that he's, he's taking office, he's going to do all these executive orders, at least uh, just letting this thing go and moving on and a sort of ignoring Trump as he goes down to Florida and plays golf for, you know, a couple of months or whatever, that Biden would be able to to work on moving his agenda through Congress, through both houses of Congress. But, but it doesn't seem like that's, you know, it seems like there's still an appetite among Democrats to, to push this thing forward. Um, I agree with Jonah. I think it divides the Republican party. There will be, um, you know, to the extent there will be a lot of, you know, intra-party fights as we saw coming out of the house impeachment um, and the, the sort of rancor that's going back and forth among among you know the Republican caucus in the House. So, but I think as a political matter, it'd be wise for Joe Biden and the Democrats to just let this thing go and and focus on moving their agenda and getting as much done as they can in in the first few months um, while the while the iron is hot, so to speak. Tom, of the seventy four million plus roughly that that voted for Trump, how many do you think after what we've seen over the past couple of weeks? are still in that camp. I mean, do we have a sense? I know what we see on the overall approval rating, but, you know, as far as a uh, rising from the ashes, Phoenix rising from the ashes politically, it may be early to tell, but is that even conceivable right now? You know, you never say never in American politics, right? And there are always second acts and and obviously a lot will depend on the circumstances, but it does seem, and and despite you look at these approval ratings and, and some of the anecdotal evidence of, of Trump supporters are, are still, you know, all in, they don't blame him for anything. They think, you know, there was a, there was a focus group that took place in Cincinnati last week where, you know, 40 Trump supporters got together and they listened to, you know, some folks who were at the at the rally in Washington and, and you know, on January 6th and, and their experiences there. And not a single one of them said that they, they liked or supported Trump less. In fact, the majority and vast majority of them said they supported Trump more than ever. So you've got his hardcore supporters are, are all in. They're always going to be all in. But to your point, Brad, I mean, uh, uh, that does not equal 74 million. It equals, you know, significantly less than that. And, and it's those other folks who voted for Trump for a variety of reasons they maybe dislike the man, maybe they dislike some of his policies. And certainly a lot of that was they disliked the Democrats and what they stood for and, and wanted to vote against, you know, either Joe Biden, the man or, or Joe Biden, the leader of the Democratic Party. And, and so, you know, it, I think it's too early to tell how those folks would receive the idea of a Donald Trump 
uh, you know, candidacy again in the future. It's, it's not at all clear that they'll be, um, they'll be fired up for that or, or supportive of that. But then again, you know, it comes down to a binary choice and, and what's, what is the choice on the other side? Yeah. And the question is, is there going to be someone who can tap the Trump supporter, but also appeal to the, um, more mainstream traditional Republicans, Matthew, um, just commend Axios and uh, Jonathan Swan for some of this behind the scenes stuff that they're reporting on uh, off the rails and really the behind the scenes about dealing with the election and saying the election was stolen and and all of the Sidney Powell and Giuliani uh, really quite something behind the scenes if if you uh, take all of that uh, to heart and I, I think Jonathan's reporting is solid. Do you think people fully understand how, you know, deep that went, uh, challenging the election in, in spite of not a lot of evidence that there was anything major widespread? I think it's just becoming um, clear to a lot of people. I also think when you look at the reporting of Jonathan Swan and, and others, and it is incredible, and it's going to make for a great book and probably a movie someday about the last two months, um, you're struck by... Uh, the fact that uh, Trump would have done it if he could. Trump would have used um, these processes to overturn the result of the election. And uh, had it not been for the state officials in Arizona and Georgia, had it not been for um, Mitch McConnell and Tom Cotton, and had it not been for his own vice president, who he then blamed and told the mob to go and um, tell, tell him what they thought of him, Trump would have proceeded. And I think that just for me personally, uh, underscores uh, the danger of uh, allowing uh, Trump to um, continue to, to have a role in American politics. And look, Trump is going to um, face legal jeopardy uh, as soon as he's out of office. There are already the investigations underway in New York. There may be an investigation in Georgia. There may be an investigation launched by the D.C. District Attorney or Attorney General. Um, he's going to he's losing money quickly. I think he's going to have to turn to the MAGA movement as a source of revenue. So I, I, I don't see him fading away. Um, now, the one thing that he doesn't have that he had before is his social media presence. And that does weaken him considerably. And I think that does lessen his force in American politics. But every survey I see of Republican voters show that they still approve of President Trump and, um, and the Trump supporters, as Tom points out, which is you know, a plurality of those Republicans, uh, you know, are diehard. They support him more than ever. We'll support anything he does. We'll hear what they have to say after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jonah, you're, you know, been critical of this president uh, from the start. You've been, you know, kind of a voice in the Republican Party that has waved a red flag. If you were to say what the major accomplishments of the Trump administration are, and you had to put a list, what would you say? Sure. I mean, um, 
and I, I'll, and I think there are many. I just want to say that, you know, among the accomplishments that most people cite actually represent the kind of conservatism that I've always advocated, you know, which detractors call zombie Reaganism. So the Supreme Court justices, they're part of the conservative legal movement. They wanted no part of the overturning the election stuff. They're all, they, 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 for the most part, they've all been great. And certainly the Supreme Court justices have been. I, I think you have to give Donald Trump just playing by the normal rules, significant credit for the Abraham Accords and the and a lot of the stuff in the Middle East, even if a lot of those things have you know long backstories to them. There are accomplishments that were on his watch that they pushed and they're significant and real. And I really hope Joe Biden doesn't screw them up. I think the tax cuts and the economic package are more of a mixed bag, but by political scorekeeping, they were big wins. And they, you know, credit goes to Trump, but also to Paul Ryan and to Mitch McConnell. And a lot of the deregulatory things, including which I think you could in some ways say is related to warp speed, which was clearly a success. Those are all major feathers in his historical cap, which is why I think that if he had conceded graciously or half graciously and saying, you know, look, there was some funny business here, but for the good of the country, I'm going to concede. If he had done that on an election night, he would be a shoe in for the front runner for the 2024 nomination. But he went a different way. And I think the events of January 6th and since then are going to eclipse a lot of those accomplishments in a lot of people's memories. And that's the only other point I would make is that they're going to be, you know, the Jonathan Swan reporting is fantastic. But once the administration is actually over and lots and lots of people leave the White House and no longer feel compelled to stay silent, it's not clear to me that we won't get even more stories that, you know, tarnish the record. And so it's, you know, his, his legacy and his stature in the eyes of Republicans and the American people in general um, is low right now, but it's, it, it could get lower and it's still just going to be a moving target for a while. Yeah, Tom, I mean, literally, if he had just, you know, maybe done three weeks of challenging the election and then spent the other time finishing and talking about uh, his legacy and what was accomplished in his four, four years, it seems like the dismount would have been much different than what we're facing uh, this week. No, I totally agree. And I, I agree with everything Jonah just said. I mean, there was widespread support within the Republican Party to give Donald Trump the, the latitude to, to pursue election challenges and to present his, his case in courts of law. And they did that and they failed. And I think that window closed. And as it closed, instead of, instead of you know, stepping back and, and saying, you know, for the good of the country, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this go, even though I fully believe in my heart of hearts that I won this election. And, and he could have spent the next four years waving the bloody shirt and saying, I'm going to go back and win this, you know, for all of you who, who voted for me the first time around, which we, you know, when we won, now we're going we're gonna to write that historic wrong. Instead, he took it too far it backfired on him. And, and now he does have his you know, lowest ratings. He's going to leave office. I, I mean, traditionally, historically, you know, once presidents leave the scene, their, their favorability ratings or approval ratings go up. They're sort of out of the fray a little bit. And, and we've seen those sorts of revivals over and over again from Harry Truman to George W. Bush. Um, you know, but Trump is very much an a historical figure in terms of he has broken all of the, you know, conventions of, of politics, both on his way in and on his way out. And so it's, it's maybe his ratings will go up if he's off the scene and he's not engaged in, in daily, you know, hand to hand political combat. Um, but, but as Jonah points out, maybe not, I mean, we'll have to wait and see how this plays out. 
Um, I think his future in the party, you know, while he will still be um, be a force in the Republican Party, uh, it's not clear that he's he, he's his future is to be the leader of the Republican Party. Although I do think a lot of the policies that he advocated for, um, it is it will be important for Republicans, whoever tries to seize the mantle in 2024, that that they're able to speak to those policies, as you mentioned before, and also it try and use those policies um, and and use them and, and unify the Republican Party, the different wings of the Republican Party, the nationalist, you know, populist aspect of the party and the establishment, um, you know, piece of the party that has fallen away. But I, I don't know who that's going to be. And I don't even know if that's possible. But, but that that's the task at yeah. hand for Republicans. Well, I, I'm just not sure how the media is going to handle not having the Trump daily <laughs> story. I just don't know. I mean, it's a drug that they're going to have to break themselves from. Matthew and Jonah and Tom, I want to just go down the row here about the Biden first hundred days. A lot of it is dismantling things. A lot of it is executive orders. We're in the first 10 days is going to be a shock and awe of writing executive orders. But with a 50-50 Senate, there are limitations of the big things that possibly are going to get done down the row. Uh, what we start with the Biden administration, Matthew? Well, it has to be the vaccine and the pandemic. Um, Look, Biden's on thin ice. Um, The country is ambivalent about him. It is a 50-50 country. And uh, some of these uh, proposals he has in the um, first big economic package he proposed last week, uh, they're just deal breakers. Republicans aren't going to go for them. And the public, if you look at the ABC Washington Post poll released in recent days, the public is pretty ambivalent about Biden. Once again, they like him personally, but some of the things he's proposing, they're kind of wishy-washy on. So he has to tread carefully. And I think if he really wants to unify the country, he has to go um, and recognize that half of the country just disagrees with his proposals, except when it comes to the pandemic. Jonah? Yeah, no, I I largely agree with that. I mean, I I think if not in the first hundred days and certainly in the first year, the only major stuff that they're going to be able to get through is going to be stuff that involves spending money because that can be done through the reconciliation process and need only 50 votes instead of 60 um, to get past the, the legislative filibuster. I think that his pandemic relief package has a lot of flaws in it and is, is in some ways still just sort of based service to various democratic constituencies rather than a true sort of Marshall plan to vaccinate America, which is so incandescently obviously in his best interest. Um, If he actually stuck to this pledge, which he seems to be backing off of, of vaccinating 100 million people in his first 100 days or whatever that number was, he would earn so much goodwill, maybe not from, you know, Ted Cruz, but from a lot of suburban Republican voters who voted for him basically to vote against Trump, but aren't necessarily Democrats yet. And the question is, is whether or not he has the foresight to actually do what is actually in his own best interest. People love to call Joe Biden a centrist. That was not his career. He was a centrist within the confines of the Democratic Party, always triangulating between the, the real centrists and the real left wing base. I don't know that he's got the ability to actually sort of be a tag team partner with Joe Manchin and actually run for govern from the center. But I do think it would be overwhelmingly in his political interest. Tom. Yeah. 
I mean, the first test is going to be this this spending package, right? And whether the Democrats decide to use budget reconciliation to get it through the Congress, get it through the Senate in particular. Um, I think that's going to be a signal as to to which way they're going to go. And obviously, the the second big priority piece of legislation that we know he's going to put forward is immigration reform. And the idea that that would get 60 votes in the Senate is is, you know, out of not not realistic at all. And so the question would become, then you're forced with the decision, do we do away? Is it time to do away with the legislative filibuster? We've been sort of moving in that direction over the course of the last few years. Um, you know, President Trump was urging Mitch McConnell to do it when he was in office. Uh, you know, left-wing Democrats are urging uh, Chuck Schumer to, to, to do away with it just so they can, you know, get on with the business of, of jamming through their wish list. And so that's going to be the real first challenge. And, and we'll have a better understanding of, of whether Joe Biden is going to sort of, you know, govern from the center or whether this is going to be just sort of a, you know, a move toward brute political force. Um, and, and we'll know sort of th- that will set the tone for the, for the, you know, coming Biden administration. The Joe Manchin vote. There we are again. Okay, uh, guys, thank you very much. Here's a bit of presidential trivia. Presidential inaugural addresses have a long history of varying in length. President George Washington holds the record for the shortest inaugural address, giving a speech at his second inauguration that was only 135 words. Meanwhile, President William Henry Harrison holds the record for the longest inaugural address, Harrison delivering his 8,000-plus word speech for an hour and 45 minutes in the bitter cold without a coat. Ironically, he would go on to serve the shortest presidency, serving only 32 days in office until passing from pneumonia. That will do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Tom, Jonah, and Matt, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.